looking at the sky. And then I felt something. I don't know. I, all I know is that I wasn't alone. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't scared of nothing. Not even dying. It was God. And there's no chance that you had this experience because some part of you needed to have it? I mean, I'm a reasonably intelligent guy, but this... My intellect, it couldn't even touch this. Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Rosenthal. That clip that you heard at the start of this episode was taken from the movie Contact, starring Michael McConaughey and Jodie Foster. And in that scene, Michael McConaughey's character was seeking to explain how it was that he became a man of faith. For him, it all came down to one particular experience. He had a personal encounter with God that he just couldn't explain. But when people argue this way, how are they to know whether it really is an experience of God, as opposed to something that can be explained by examining our brain chemistry? And if it really is something supernatural, how are we to know whether it's an experience of the God of the Bible, as opposed to the Quran? Why couldn't it be explained as an experience of the angel Moroni, a ghost, or an alien from outer space? Too often, you see, we allow our experiences to confirm that which we already believe. And since there are so many different beliefs and religious experiences, we need to step back and ask whether our experiences really do end up confirming the specific dogmas that we prefer. Last week on the program, I mentioned the Mormon teaching of the burning in the bosom. Though the Mormon doctrine of God happens to be quite distinct from classical Trinitarian Christianity, Latter-day Saints claim that their individual experiences of God end up confirming their unique perspective. Listen, for example, to the following clips from various LDS representatives. Where I gained my testimony that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was true, it all came down to the Book of Mormon. I remember one day just reading, and then as I was reading, it was just like a lightning bolt, but a very peaceful, calm lightning bolt, that what I am reading is true. Like, just that spark of pure intelligence that 
Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. That was a indelible impression of the spirit that it, it was true. And the only way you can describe it is just an overwhelming sense of love. So sometimes LDS members have told people to take the Moroni prayer challenge, which is Moroni 10 through 5, and by doing so, the person is going to feel some type of burning in their bosom, a feeling of comfort and serenity. Just as in DNC 623 where it states, did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? Joseph claimed that the Book of Mormon was written on gold plates. This claim received unrelenting criticism in his day. While well, someone might choose to believe the critic's line of reasoning, it is for me an intellectual and spiritual dead end. To believe such, I would have to accept one unproven assumption after another. I would have to reject the divine doctrine that fills page after page of this sacred book with its supernal truths. I would have to ignore the fact that multitudes, including myself, have come closer to God by reading this book than any other. And above all, I would have to deny the confirming whisperings of the Holy Spirit. This would be contrary to everything I know to be true. One of my good friends left the church for a time. He recently wrote to me of his return, quote, Initially, I wanted the Book of Mormon to be proven to me historically, geographically, linguistically, and culturally. But one day while reading the Book of Mormon in my room, I paused, knelt down, and gave a heartfelt prayer and felt resoundingly that Heavenly Father whispered to my spirit that the Church and the Book of Mormon were definitely true. If one will take the time to humbly read and ponder the Book of Mormon, as did my friend, and give ear to the sweet fruits of the Spirit, then he or she will eventually receive the desired witness. What's interesting is that I've heard similar views from many of the Christians I've interviewed at various times and places. Listen, for example, to the following. There are a lot of faith options. There are many holy books. So why do you have this particular faith in this particular God with a particular biblical emphasis? Why the Bible? Why God? Well, to a certain extent, God makes sense in that um, He fulfills my deepest need, okay? And He understands me and gives me the, the fulfillment that I feel that I, I need the most. And um, So if you're like at the buffet of religious options, you know, you got Islam and Buddhism and Christianity you sort of have taken from that and you say, it tastes good to me? Yes, it does. It does. It has to. It seems to me, though, that it's not the same as evaluating that which is true. It seems like that's what tastes good to me, that which I experience. But it seems, wouldn't the Muslim or the Hindu also say, I've experienced it, I've, I've had a lot of interesting experiences in their tradition, too? Yeah, you could say they do have that uh, kind of experience. You know, I'm not out to judge the experiences of people because experiences are very subjective, all right? But what is objective uh, to me is his word, what, what he says about himself. Now, Muslims would say the word of God, the way he revealed himself, is the Quran. Mormons would say the Book of Mormon. So how do we know which book is the right one? I think I don't have the full answer for, for that one, to be honest. 
Why do you have confidence in the Bible as opposed to other holy books? My personal view is the fact that I've had an experience with it. Um, obviously, I've read other things other people have said. Lots of people, lots of places, long before me, said lots of things about it, you know. But I personally believe it because I found that it speaks to my heart and it applies to real life. And I believe it has made my life better. And I believe because of it, maybe I've been able to be used to help the world be a better place in what small circle of influence I have, you know. I believe in the Bible because I can feel it. And from my experiences, just it goes together and it fits. And I just know it's true. I got some amazing experiences which led me to this church and the Bible. In other words, having had the experiences I've had, I have to be here. I'm convinced for my principal reason is for I have seen in the life of people how their life has changed, their, how the Bible has changed their lives. So that's a powerful argument. Now, I have had Muslims tell me the same thing. One Muslim said she's convinced that Islam is true because of the power she's seen the Quran change people's lives. There is a mystery. You know, I have not known personally the other books like Quran. I have been in the Christianity world and I have known that the Bible has been the sacred book. And I have seen in my own life how the Bible has changed me. It's something that I cannot describe because it's an experience, you know. As you heard in some of those clips, when confronted with the idea that people from other faiths also have religious experiences, most of these Christian believers didn't really know what to say. But the simple fact of the matter is that personal experience can't be a good test for truth if it is used to confirm all our conflicting dogmas and worldview perspectives. And this brings up the issue of confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is a um, human bias towards information that confirms our pre-existing beliefs or hypotheses, right? So if there's this information out in the world, you know, a bit of data or an idea, we're much more likely to notice it in the first place and subsequently accept it, believe it, you know, integrate it into our belief system if it confirms what we already think. Uh, in contrast, if there's a bit of information or data or an idea out there in the world that disconfirms something we think, we will do anything but the intellectual heavy lifting required to change our minds. When something doesn't confirm to what I already believe, what people tend to do is either disregard it or rationalize it away because information doesn't take into account what makes us human, which is our emotions, our desires, our motives, and our prior beliefs. Intrinsic bias is something that gets to our very core. It's bias that's shaped by our culture, our religion, in which we were raised. It's a bias with good intentions. The challenge we have is that we must be willing to see our own biases and try to see past them. We must be willing to put these biases and put our preconceived ideas up in the face of real, solid evidence. And if it doesn't stand up to that evidence, change them. Now, along those lines, I'd like you to listen to a clip you've heard before, but this time I'll be airing more of the conversation since it reveals a little more about the person I was interviewing. 
in my case, I was born Seventh-day Adventist. So maybe for others, it's different. But in my case, it is my style of life. And now I can see that without the faith, I can't live. So our faith in God, that we are doing the correct thing, it's our breath. So you might get the same answer from someone who's raised in Islam. So is it just kind of like, should you be faithful to the tradition you're raised in? Or is there one truth above all the other religious options? Actually, we start learning this when we are a kid. We start asking, am I going to the correct way? So yes. So now I'm convicted that what I'm doing, it's correct. So how did you get there? It was the personal experience with God because I walk with Him. It's not only read the Bible, it's not only pray, but in daily life He's with me and I can see through the things that happen. Okay, we pray, but can you see things happening when you pray? And I can do it. If you were listening closely, you may have noticed that this individual, who was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist, thought of her faith as her very breath. And this is why it's often incredibly difficult to talk a person out of their deeply held convictions, because those beliefs end up being at the very core of their identity and help to make sense of the world around them. But all of our conflicting core beliefs simply can't be right, which is why we need to think carefully about all the various religious and worldview claims. Seventh-day Adventists end up denying the Mormon claim that Joseph Smith was a true prophet, but they hold that a woman named Ellen White received true revelations from God as she spoke about the importance of the Seventh-day Sabbath and various dietary regulations. Do you think Ellen White was a prophetess? I would say that she was a messenger from God. The same spirit that inspired prophets in the Bible, the same spirit inspired Ellen G. White. So she received a revelation from God telling her not to eat pork. And is that the practice of SDA people today, not to eat pork? Not only pork. You have clean food or unclean food. God showed her what she needs to do for the health reform. If personal or practical experience is seen as the proper way to validate faith, then how are we to adjudicate between all the various experiences the people have across the wide spectrum of belief. You believe in Muhammad. Why this prophet uh, rather than others? Well, he is just our prophet because he wrote our book. We believe that Muhammad was the last prophet and we recognize all other prophets before him, but he was the last prophet. Do you believe in a lot of the Hindu gods, Vishnu? As a Muslim, I don't believe in those, but I respect all other religions. I have a lot of Hindu and Sikh friends, so... Okay, so the question would then be, why Muhammad and not Vishnu? For me, I find more value. I find more hands-on from God than from praying to idols. In my experience, I feel like that has more value for me. But it varies What kind of value? Like comfort? Therapeutic uh, value? Comfort practical is a really value. big point. For me, a lot of it is um, sometimes at the end of the day when you have no one else to turn to. You know you have God. He'll listen to your prayers or, you know, whatever that issue is. I think being saturated in, like, mostly Judeo-Christian religions definitely shapes your outlook. 
I don't know. I think I'd be much more um, inclined to believe Eastern religions if I was born in the East. When I was younger, I wanted to believe there was a God. As I got older, I had a lot of doubt. And then I began to think that maybe we are God ourselves. We are the gods of our lives. So why? Why? Why that view rather than all the thousands of other possible views? I think it's... Is it just personal taste? Like what I want um, to believe? I think because I found more peace with like uh, Buddha and yoga type of philosophy. I could be wrong, but I feel that religion is a man-made thing that gives um, humankind hope and peace and whatever it is that gets them through the day. So whatever does that for you is what you go with. I came out of fundamentalism and I'm now a very liberal Episcopalian and I had questions about women being kept out of leadership and about homosexuality being like this big ultimate sin and all these things that just didn't feel true to what I was experiencing in in life around me, you know. I grew up in a Christian family, but I don't really see how it added anything to my life that was very useful. Like sermons, they'd give you like a feel-good message, but a lot of other um, like self-help or stuff like that can give you the same thing. That last conversation I recorded was from a college student who was raised in a Christian family, yet who abandoned the faith when he realized that he could find plenty of feel-good messages outside the walls of the church. Now I'd like you to listen to a conversation I recorded with a Christian college student who anchored her faith in her own personal experience. I've always grown up Christian, but personal experience has confirmed my Christianity. Um, there's no instances where I've seen God, but I've felt Him, and um, there are a lot of experiences that I've been through that I've said, okay, that has to be a greater power. A lot of people from a lot of different traditions will say they have experiences of their faith, so is it possible that what you're experiencing isn't really different from a placebo? Um, from other religions, yes, but I follow the Bible, and I see the Bible come to life every day, and so that's where my faith comes from. How do you try to convince others, friends, relatives who don't believe, to get them to become believers? Just being um, open to saying, this is what I've experienced, and showing an instance that says, this cannot be just a coincidence. This has to have happened from something. And hopefully they will say, yeah, you're right, this is pretty amazing the way this happened. If someone told you that they thought the Bible was a bunch of myths, what would you say to them? I'd say I, I choose to believe these myths, I guess. Now, a clear reading of the New Testament makes it abundantly plain that the earliest Christians weren't handing down myths but instead based their claims on reliable eyewitness testimony and Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But because this believer was taught to focus exclusively on her own subjective experiences, she simply didn't know how to make a case for the objective factual nature of the Christian truth claim. 
As we've seen, appeals to practical experience are found in many other faiths outside the world of Christianity. They end up being used to confirm Mormonism for the Mormon, Islam for the Muslim, Buddhism for the yoga practitioner, liberalism for the secular Episcopalian, along with various forms of Christian experience as well. As I've mentioned on previous episodes, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a succinct summary of the Christian gospel, saying, quote, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In verse 14, he went on to say that if Christ has not been risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. In this famous passage, Paul wasn't attempting to generate some kind of religious experience, but was simply reminding the Corinthians of a particular set of facts and events that had recently transpired. These particular events had to do with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which had been announced centuries in advance throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And if those facts didn't happen to be true, then as Paul says... Christianity is a waste of time. Some years back, I recorded a number of man-on-the-street interviews at a Christian convention, and I asked attendees what they thought was the best way to reach people who were unconvinced about the truth of Christianity. Listen to some of these responses. You can really only share your own life story and your personal experience, because no one can refute that. It happened to you, and you're sharing that with someone else, and it's more situational. And then you can use lead-in questions, and if they ask why, then you can say, well, you know, in the Bible it does say this, and from my experiences, this is what's happened to me, and this is how I came to know that it's truth. And then they decide for themselves. I think it's just to try to, to be the gospel. You know, a lot of people are inundated with information overload about what is best for them in their lives, but I think if they see us living as best we can through the Spirit, what it means to be a Christian, that's more convincing than anything. Uh, sharing the story of how God has worked in your life. Oh, your story. Yeah, your testimony. I think with the testimony, they can't argue and say, oh, no, no, that didn't happen. That's not like that. Well, actually, yes, it did. It's me. So there's no room for argument. So I think oftentimes that might be the best bet. Sharing your testimony. What has what is, what is God done in your life? I'd say sharing your testimony. <laughs> Because it's personal, and anytime you're telling your own story, that's going to affect people more than something that they might not be able to relate to. And if, I mean, you have instant credibility because it happened to you, so. Testimony. And the testimony is what people, what changes life, you know. I'm better at sharing my testimony. Your testimony is your testimony. It is your life-changed experience. And nobody can refute your personal life-changed experience. No one can deny that God's changed your life. And that, I, I've seen that that makes the most profound impact. And when people are attracted to that life change, then they're a lot more open than even they thought they would have been. As you heard in those clips, the overwhelming response is that we shouldn't try to argue with people, but should instead tell them our own story, because it's personal, relatable, and something that can't be refuted. But as we've seen on this episode, personal experience is something that can be refuted because it's a feature of just about every other religious or worldview perspective. When Christians do end up making this transition from the story of Jesus to their own personal story, in my view, they're actually relinquishing the thing of first importance. 
rather than focusing on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, as testified by a multitude of reliable witnesses and as written in advance throughout the scriptures, many Christians today end up proclaiming a different gospel. In a complete inversion of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 4-5, we preach not Jesus, but ourselves. So how did Christianity end up squandering its birthright? How did it end up becoming so experiential, personal, and subjective, rather than fact-based, objective, and Christ-centered, as we find in the pages of the New Testament? Well, as we saw last week, much of this is due to certain historical trends that ended up distorting the basic Christian message over time. On the last episode, I aired part one of my conversation with Dr. J.R. Miller, who traces some of these historical trends in his book, One Lord, One Faith, and One Baptism, and here's part two of that discussion. After the Azusa Street Revivals uh, in Los Angeles, do you think that Los Angeles becomes kind of a mecca for Pentecostalism? I mean, it, it's not an accident, is it, that Amy Simple McPherson built Angelus Temple there in Los Angeles yeah. in 1923 and has this huge following? What do you think about the connection there between Azusa Street and what she later builds when she yeah. founds the Foursquare Gospel denomination? Yeah, I, I think you can't extract the impact of the Azusa Street Revivals on shaping somebody like, you know, Amy Simple McPherson or others. It certainly had an impact. Uh, and, and to one degree or another, all of these different movements are shaped by the same aberrant, you know, experientialist philosophy, the, you know, Western culture of individualism, self as the center of truth and morality. But I would say I think it grew out of that same cultural context that part of that was that theological commitment to the Holy Spirit and my experience as the center of truth. But it's interesting the way she takes it. Amy Simple McPherson, I think, was a Canadian, and then she comes to Los Angeles riding that bandwagon of charismatic Pentecostal theology, but she kind of Mm -hmm. takes that me-centered approach and then creates a kind of very relevant gospel that's more about stage Mm -hmm. performance, and it's the parishioner as audience member who is being entertained. She had kind of a vaudevillian presence, Mm -hmm. a lot of skits and illustrated sermons. And I actually argue that that's the beginning of the modern megachurch is her building Evangelist Temple, which was just 1923, 100 years ago Mm -hmm. this year. Most of us think of the modern megachurch as, you know, the 70s with the seeker sensitive movement. But I actually trace it back to 1923 with Amy Simple McPherson. And part of it is yeah. that quest for relevance, the quest for experiential, mm-hmm. and how do you have that relevant yeah. experiential approach that has kind of come to dominate American Christianity? Well, you you kind of have to meet people where yeah. they're at. They want to have their ears tickled and they want to have toe-tapping music. <laughs> yeah. And, and to that degree, for, for that part of it, for sure, I, I would actually go, I think the step right before Amy Simple McPherson in that sense would be Charles Finney. Mm. Uh, so Charles Finney is, you know, a lawyer. He's this sort of, he's in this sort of Presbyterian, uh, what is really a dead dry orthodoxy. It's About a century earlier. World. Yeah. So in the mid 1800s, 
But what happens with Finney is he says that, look, we can create revival if we create the right circumstances. Yeah, because he says it wasn't the work of the Holy Spirit. It was the work of man and and the right use of techniques. Exactly. So he actually rejected the fact that the Holy Spirit did anything except model or encourage, but it's all reformation is self-reformation. Revival is self-revival. Salvation is a self-salvation in a sense, is really what he, he was arguing was, because we save ourselves by discovering these truths and also, you know, really weird theology. But his practices called the new measures. So he predates uh, 1901 Pentecostalism, but Pentecostalism trades in the same sort of thinking, just yeah. for that timetable. So, but uh, for Finney, then, if we create this environment, if we set the stage, if we have the lighting just right, if we put out the, the anxious bench where we can go and pray, and if we do all these things, we can guarantee revival. Yeah. And I think the anxious honest, bench is the predecessor to the altar call. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The altar call, the anxious bench is our modern altar yeah. call. Uh, and that's where you see early Pentecostals using this anxious bench as a, now we need to plead for God to give us this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So they sort of take these new measures of Finney, they're creating the environment, and now they have the expectation. So with expectation comes fulfillment. And so they're using these new measures yeah. to manipulate uh, God into giving me the, the result I am seeking. Because if you go through the steps, God will give you the result. And I'll, to be honest, I think you're right about this Amy Simple McPherson, but I think so much of evangelicalism is this thing. Look how many of our sermons are, here's the five happy hops to a better life. Do these three things and God will bless you. Do these six things and your marriage will be perfect. All of these things are predicated on this Finian theology whether you are, you think, oh, I'm not Pentecostal charismatic. Yeah, but a lot of it is still baked in yeah. to thinking we can manipulate God, which is closer to magic than it is to biblical faith. Because we think if we repeat the formula, God is obligated to give me the result. My professor, uh, Dr. Robert Godfrey, once made a, a fascinating observation about Finney. He said that mm. right there in Finney's in the opening of a systematic theology, you know, it's where he even talks about excitements sufficient to induce conversion, because as you say, it's self-reformation. So what yeah. we need to do as churches is to have excitements sufficient to induce conversion. But Finney himself says, because he's a post-millennialist and he believes, like a lot of people in that period, late 1800s, believed that the they were about to usher in the new millennium. Mormons believe this. Seventh-day Adventists believe this. Mm-hmm. He said, excitements oft produced will destroy the body. So we can only do this for this last hurrah to usher in the end. And Dr. Godfrey, you know, pointed out that like we we haven't listened to Finney. <laughs> what we have is a hundred years something later, and we've seen that all these excitements and these, you know, have we got the Jesus show for you? And oh, we got the laughing revival, we have people clucking like chickens and you know, all kinds of different waves of various things that you and I have seen over the course of the last fifty years. Mm-hmm. And it's destroyed the body. Yeah. Well, it destroyed, it just, it was destroyed in Finney's time, you know, in upper upstate New York, where a lot of his revivals, there's a lot of people working at the time it became known as the burned over district. Right. Because of all the people that, you know, the thousands and thousands of people who came to faith in Finney's revivals, 
uh, ended up in despair, lost, alone, abandoning the church. And even Finney laments this later uh, as, a, as a, uh, the largest failure of his ministry was that there was no long-term impact. Yeah. Uh, even that he could see, I mean, like in his lifetime, he saw the failure of his ministry, yet we use it as the model for how we do church. And a lot of, and this is where, you know, get a lot of people mad, but, uh, you know, a, a lot of our church growth strategies are based off Finney's, you know, ideas of ecclesiology and church and yep. revivalism. So what we have to do is we have to say, okay, does that make everything practice we do wrong if it's similar to what Finney did? No, but we better make sure that our practices, like our experience, are grounded in the scripture yep. and that they're producing the fruit of salvation that, that should come with the genuine gospel. So if they're not, we need to change it, whether that's the style of worship or whether that's a particular interpretation of our experience. All of those things need to reflect the truth of God's word, or we are going to get uh, no different result than Finney got, which is burnt, people burned over uh, and just destroyed uh, and angry at God. Yeah. One more character I want us to talk about, and that's John Wesley. Talk about mm -hmm. uh, his second stage of Christian perfectionism that sort of led yeah. to some of these movements. So he's, uh, I think, born in early 1700s and dies late yeah. 1700s. Yeah, the Wesleyan theology was really interesting, and it's at least how it influenced this, this later Pentecostal right. theology. Um, so Wesley had this idea that Christians could attain what he called Christian perfection. It is something that happens after salvation where we become sinless and perfect without sin. Now, I have a lot of issues with his terminology of sinless perfection because ultimately he says, does this mean we'll never fall back into sin? No. Does this mean that we won't do bad stuff again? No. So it doesn't sound very perfect, um, <laughs> nor does it sound very sinless. So I think on its face, it, it sort of doesn't make much sense. So mistakes and flaws aside, he was saying we need the Holy Spirit if we are going to be holy people who seek after God. We can't just say we seek God and that has no impact on our life. So at its core, that's what he was trying to get across. Okay. So this obviously sparked a lot of the holiness movements that grew up during the second great awakening in the late 1800s. Right. And so it wasn't though until after Wesley and some of his followers after that, they started to assign this idea of spirit baptism to this experience of Christian perfection. And so that's sort of the way that uh, through this Christian perfection, through the pursuit of holiness, then the uh, adoption of the language of spirit baptism, and then seeking that as a moment of crisis became one of those big things. So they start seeking crisis experiences, right? These dramatic moments in these holiness movements. So the, then seeking a dramatic moment of crisis, now I know I have received the spirit baptism, but people were still like, ah, it's too vague. Then you get the idea of, well, what if it was accompanied by speaking in tongues right. or other miracles? Right. So you keep adding these sort of things as people realize their theology isn't working. They keep adding more to it. Yeah. And this is the, the essential progress that you have. And then eventually just to, for the sake of completeness, the, the concept of holiness completely disappears. And then it's, we're just seeking second experience, baptism, speaking in tongues in and of itself. That's all we're at. So uh, at least Wesley was per, in pursuit of holiness, which I think is a biblical thing, as opposed to just some experience with God to validate everything I believe and think. Well, I had the experience. So everything I think is right. Uh, boy, that goes a long way 
and even to justifying unholy actions, as long as you do it because you've had this experience, things that were very unholy were justified. But when you get but to the, the Shakers, community. like uh, Mother Anne Lee, they, yeah. the Shakers have a very strong emphasis on experience. That's oh, yeah. why they're called Shakers, uh, oh, very yeah. experiential. And yet she believes that she is an incarnation you know, of God in her era. So it, yeah. again, it was a very powerful movement in its day. And yet the theology drifted away from Nicene Christianity. Yeah, the Shakers were shaking, the Quakers were quaking, and the Methodists were rolling. I grew up in a Methodist church, and it's like, you know, I was like, sort of, yeah, it is what it is. They, they were the groups that started the idea of holy rollers. Right. Uh, if you followed that expression, the holy rollers, it's because those early Methodists were rolling down the aisles to as part of their ecstatic experience. Which is where, so, by the yeah, way, I mean, rock and roll is born out of that whole thing. Yeah, play the music, get the rolling yeah. going. Yeah, but think about historically, you could look to Old Testament, New Testament, tons of people who were claimed prophetic utterance gave them the authority. I speak and, you know, these prophets from Greece to Rome to, you know, those that claim to be Christian would like shake or their eyes would roll back or they'd have these external manifestations that proved that there's something spiritual beyond reason was happening. Oh, it must be true. So I just think there's a deeper tie to all that yeah. to our sin nature, right. to decenter God, to center man. And you see it crop up in very different groups who have very different theology, who may not even be connected in any meaningful way, yet they're, we're all prone to this thing to make man the center yeah. of faith, right? Yeah. And we'll do anything to justify our belief that I am the center of my faith and I am the master of my domain. I, I do think it's interesting that Yahweh in the Old Testament has a very different sort of justification for his religion. You know, with the, mm -hmm. the criteria you find in Deuteronomy, it has to be consistent with what you saw me speaking to Moses and all the revelation that came out of uh, the Exodus experience. It has to be consistent, can't worship other gods. And then another criteria from Deuteronomy 18 says that anyone who claims to be a prophet, his words actually have to come to pass. Whatever he says about the future has to actually happen. Mm -hmm. It's not just, I believe and I feel this ecstatic experience, but the truth that I profess has to be consistent with the events of the real world. And yeah. that's, I think, when you look at what the Jews and the New Testament that's are doing, true. the First Corinthians 15, these things were seen by eyewitnesses and it fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. Yeah. See, this is why that both and side of that is so important. Think about the Old Testament. How many prophets, you know, hey, God has told me, go out, walk naked, uh, carry a yoke on my shoulder. I and mean, these prophets did some insane stuff. Yep. The action wasn't the validation. Just, oh, that guy did something insane. He must be truth telling, right? Like you're saying, it had to prove itself. It had to be shown true, right? So uh, that's what is happening there. So when the disciples would heal, this isn't in and of itself a proof of anything. It's only an evidence because it points to the fact that they're fulfilling something God promised would happen. So in this sense, it's again that that intermixing of experience with truth and reason and you know observation and faith, all of these things exist simultaneously. It's not this one precedes this, then falls from this. Right. Uh, it, it's they all exist simultaneously. And it's when we try to extract one of those, and it can be reason it too. If all oh, reason is the only thing that matters, everything else is later. Well, then we become you know, rationalists right. who think that they can reason their way to God without any work of God. I don't need the Holy Spirit. I just need reason. But rationalism doesn't undermine the purpose of reason. 
So I pull out experience. Oh, experience is the only thing I need. That Well, no, we need experience, but not if it turns into experientialism. Yeah. Right. I need faith, but not if it, it turns into fideism. Yeah. Right. So we can take any good thing and destroy it by making it the center and not God and his truth that's revealed to us the center. And that's the challenge we have in all of these things is trying not to correct the pendulum the, the other way where we end up into another field of heresy to correct the other exactly heresy. Yeah. And none of us have the magic bullet. And that's why conversations like this are so important because it helps refine our thinking to make sure, have I gone too far or have I committed the same error that I'm claiming these other people have committed uh, only just ways that are acceptable to my tribe of people. And, and see, for me, it's always a matter of self of conviction and all of these things. When I read, you know, wrote this book, one Lord, one faith and baptism, I'm not judging Pentecostals as they're the evil people and I've got it right. Yeah. What I'm saying is I need to look at my life. And if I'm going to analyze my life, I've got to look at my history. And until I understand that, I won't understand my own failings, my own theological shortcomings. And then once I do, hopefully I won't repeat the mistakes of the past and I can live faithfully. And that's the goal for all of us. That's a, that's a great way to put it. I mean, one of the things that I think about was, uh, you know, even the name of this podcast, The Humble Skeptic, is that we should be skeptical even of our own interpretations and views and keep rechecking them, keep going back to the foundations, reevaluating throughout the course of your life. Because really, this is what we want others to do. This is what we want the Mormons and the Muslims to do. Go back to your foundation and check to see whether these things are so. <laughs> and mm. so you keep going back and you say, I think a lot of human thought and rationality is rooted in confirmation bias. I think we just want to justify what, what we already are instead of actually trying to conform ourselves with what should be, with what God mm. has actually revealed. But that takes wisdom and sanctification. It's a long process. And so the best way to get there is to be humble and to say, okay, I need to see my shortcomings. I need to see my, what, what are my blinders? And, and I think that approach, that Christian approach is what created the scientific method and other mm -hmm. streams that are seeking objectivity. And I just mm -hmm. think we, we're right now in a sea of subjectivity. Yeah, absolutely. And that is there and that's the challenge. And, and it's another example we we're just talking about, you know, you know, if we take reason as, as say, oh, that's the thing, then it becomes rationalism. Well, if we take our capacity to observe uh, and call it science and then extract it from faith and reason and conscience and truth of scripture, then it becomes scientism. Right. Right. So we can turn anything good into something bad. Anything that could be a genuine source of knowledge of God can be corrupted when we extract it from the other ways of knowing God. And ultimately, if we take that thing as a denial of the transcendent truth that exists outside those ways of knowing. So these are all way, experience is a way of knowing. My conscience is a way of knowing. If I take my conscience as the only way of knowing, I become a person who says, oh, I just follow my heart, right? But that doesn't mean my conscience always leads me to deceit or That's falsehood. Right. The psalmist definitely expresses emotion, talks about experience. He's always interacting with the God who has interrupted history and has appeared and has made revelation and has guided the sheep to his directed end, which ultimately culminates in the person and work of Christ. So the anchor is God's interruption of the course of historical events. And if we sort of detach ourselves from that, then we're solipsistic and we're you know trapped in in our own emotion and our own experience 
and our own thoughts uh, mm. on our own everything. It just becomes self-centered everything. But if we pay attention to the God who has revealed himself and we pay attention to how that ultimately points to Christ, which is what the apostles are doing in every other page throughout the book of Acts, mm-hmm. here's the one who the witnesses saw and here's what the prophets foresaw, then that's that's our rescue. Yeah, amen. I would agree. Uh, I think that's a solid assessment of how we should look at this book of Acts and center the what's meant to be centered and not turn other narratives, which are important to the story of Acts, but not try to make those the center because ultimately it gets, uh, it puts the, emph- what's the old phrase? It puts the emphasis on the wrong syllable. The wrong you know? syllable. <laughs> yeah, it puts the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Joe Miller has been my guest for this program. He's the author of One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. And thank you for being my guest for these episodes of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Thank you, brother. Well, folks, if you'd like to read more on this topic, you can find a link to Dr. Miller's book in the show notes, along with a few articles that I've also written. Also, for a gift of any size, I'll be happy to send you a 26-page PDF document that I've recently published. It walks through the Christ-centered focus of Acts chapter 2, and which also offers an alternative perspective to the controversial subject of tongues. In fact, in this document, I actually spend time walking through every verse where the subject of tongues appears in the New Testament. If you'd like to receive this PDF, simply make a gift of any size by heading to the show notes of this episode at humbleskeptic.com or by upgrading to a paid subscription via Substack. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Mm -hmm.